You're, You're listening, listening to Booth One. That's like radio Fantastic. pro shit, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Can we swear on Booth One? Yes. Yeah, cool. Good. Welcome to episode 80 of Booth One, where we celebrate the art of lively conversation about the arts and popular culture. Gary Zabinski, your host, here coming to you solo while Frank continues his extended vacation in Europe. Wish I were there. Frank, big shout out to you. Can't wait to have you back. Well, we have in the booth Chicago artist and author Tony Fitzpatrick and his son, Max. I wanted to get to our guests right away because we have a ton to talk about. How are you guys? Hey, Tony. Hey, Max. Cool, yeah. Great yeah. to be here, yeah. <laughs> we, you know, we had to figure out how to get up to Evanston because we, nev- we almost never get th- this far north. I mean, I, it's a little I, embarrassing how ignorant of this yeah, we had a, town we are. Yeah, we had a planes, trains, and automobiles kind of chemistry yeah. getting over here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we we yeah. wound up on the Kennedy. The GPS you know? will do did that. You, did yeah. he take you? Oh, you wound up on the Kennedy. <laughs> we wound up on the Kennedy and kind of took that long way around. We're, Max never wants to come to Evanston. I said, well, why don't you want to go to I got my ass kicked here once. (laughs) (laughs) Let me tell our listeners a little bit about you. Tony is a Chicago-based author and artist best known for his multimedia collages. And correct me if I say anything that's not exactly true, Tony. They're mostly drawings and it's drawing and collages. And printmaking and paintings. His art appears in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, and the National Museum of American Art in Washington, D.C. You've also done a lot of cover art for music albums. Yeah, absolutely. Especially a Steve Earls. That's how guys who, who look like me get to be in the rock and roll business without <laughs> any musical talent. Yeah, yeah you, I've done you do the, album uh, covers. I've done all of Steve's since, since I Feel All Right. Like you know. 96 or something like that. Yeah, maybe yeah even about earlier. 94, 95. Yeah, yeah. Lately, uh, a lot of jazz. Uh, I love jazz, so I've, I've done all of Frank Catalano's. And, you know, there's just some great insurgent songwriters that I love. Ike Riley from up here. I mean, he's from Libertyville. North up side. North, up yeah, north yeah. suburbs, yeah. Um, and Sarah Borges, great Boston yeah. songwriter and singer. And they all kind of got folded into that whole Americana which is kind of a ghettoized way of saying they're singer-songwriters. You know, Emmy Lou Harris and, and Neil Young and all of them were in the mid-'70s. I mean, to my way of thinking, they're everybody's good. They're our, our generation of that. In addition to making a living as an artist and an author, you also have worked as a radio host, as probably our listeners can tell yeah. from your dulcet yeah. tones. <laughs> Bartender, uh, yeah. boxer, yeah. construction worker, anything film to avoid and stage honest actor. work, anything to avoid lifting a shovel or a wheelbarrow. You know, <laughs> in November of 2009, the weekly arts and entertainment publication here named New City named Tony Fitzpatrick the best iconic Chicago personality. Now that Studs Terkel is gone, Boy, and I really did they I really? Did, when, did, yeah. when did they? When did New City do that? In 2009, about a, about a year after Studs died, it was wow. kind of my mentor. I mean, That's he shaped the way I saw the world. Amazing. Gabby and Max are your children. Max, hey, tell us a little bit about yourself. What have you been up to these days? Well, uh, I work at Adventureland Gallery uh, with my dad, and been kind of helping him with business alongside and. Every now and then I get the good fortune of going out on an audition and either 
getting the part or, uh, you know, being really mad I didn't do, <laughs> do something right. But so, yeah. So you've caught the, um, you've caught the acting yeah, bug, right? dragged my son into well, this horrible uh, you business. You know, um, my sister was actually the performer before us, and I was more of the quiet. I actually liked to draw, and I liked movies at the time. I just wasn't sure how I wanted to go about that until college. And then in the end of college, my focus started to shift toward acting because I had to jump in my scenes. I had to jump in my projects because college actors are kind of, you know, flaky. They don't show flaky. up. Flaky? Is, is that fair yeah. to say? Is that, is that yeah. fair to say? Uh, you're 19, 20, 21. You have other focuses, and it's different. I get it. But after I graduated, I took it to Second City, and I got a good response at Second City. I completed the improv program, and then I got my dad's trust of talking to his talent agency, which is Grossman and Jack. So, well, you yeah, sounds like you're well on your way. Yeah, it's it's you know, been the a thing fast, I noticed about him is that he's pace. got he's got comic timing that that I would kill for. He's got ten he, times cool. more talent <laughs> as an actor than I do. So I really, mean, at this point, I, I I would disagree with that. I want to get way better. I seek growth, and and when you notice that thing in yourself, that's that's when you that's when you know you're getting good. And I love it when I bomb or something or like a, <laughs> an audition or, or, or like well, I thought you... something was funny but it, it, as much as I hate it I know that that's going to be the moment that takes you to get to another level of acting but you learn a lot from failure wow. I don't think failure, I'm but, yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen. but I've learned a lot from my dad as well and it's well, been you, a blessing you and your dad um, also have a podcast together yes. right yes. It's, yeah. it's called the Max and Tony show yes sir how did you come up with that title <laughs> we did, you know, we agonized over it for like six months. We, we probably think of all this postponed like cool it because shit, of the like title. Yeah, Western Avenue Radio or Fast Underworld. Times on yeah. Adventureland Gallery or so, you know, it's <laughs> Underworld. Oh you yeah. know, I Underworld, mean, this literally yeah. stalled the podcast for six months. Just corny names. Yeah, he's, we couldn't think of a name, and finally, he's like, "We're just going to call it the Max and Tony Show." Enough yeah. of this bullshit. And I that think all, that works. yeah, that all inspired from my dad's radio days at the Loop and just everyone. Yeah telling me stories of those days and me not being able to experience that, I was very jealous. And once this podcast revolution started to take off, I thought there was an opportunity to do something here. What have you found to be your biggest challenges to launching a podcast? Because this is our 80th episode, and we've had a lot of struggles along oh, the yeah, way. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's, we, we, you know, luckily we have the world's most patient, lovely guy producing the show. He's a yeah. crack producer, a guy named Chris Bat. Who's over Parkwalk Production. Yeah, <laughs> yeah luckily, luckily we have a guy who's well-versed in all the AV yeah. shit. Because right. like, that's like me looking at gerbil language. I, I do not... Our, <laughs> our soundboard here? I have yeah. no... Technological ability at all. You're like me. I could play with the dials, you know, raising Rangoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Play play ham radio operator. My son has to show me how to do shit on my iPhone. What have you found to be your biggest challenges other than the technical part, which you seem to have solved by having a professional involved? The minute we sit down, we're we're able to go. I mean, we're... um, I've noticed. We sometimes don't have a guest, and sometimes those are really the best shows. I think we risk repeating ourselves sometimes, but I, I think we're in the beginning of our days, so yeah. I think I think we're allowed to tell a story, a, you know, a couple was, more times in case an audience member didn't yeah. catch it on a certain episode. It's uh, also a brand new world. Yeah, you know, we, you know what I mean. Yeah. Podcasts, you know, right. ten years ago, never nobody ever heard of a podcast. Yeah, it's much know? more personal. I mean, it's a much yeah. more personal radio show, which it leads to problems like 
getting us in trouble for saying stuff that we didn't realize we were saying. You know, yeah. We, yeah, um, yeah. it made me realize that you have to be conscious about what you, you say. You have to be and, responsible. And what you do. As responsible as I'm capable of being, you know. <laughs> right. But I'm, I mean, I'm at the point where you raise your kids and at a certain point they start teaching you. I'm at the point where I learn more from Max and Gabby. I consider it the more important part of my education. Max's sister is on an island off of Greece right now working with refugees. So we spent part of this year in Paris, and we're learning a lot about the culture that we live in from the long lens of seeing it from somewhere else, from Europe, from the perspective of people who were refugees. And I mean, right now we have this own, this crisis has come home to our country. I just did a poster for the Women's Refugee Commission and Amnesty International uh, to address that. So we found with the podcast, it isn't all just conversations about showbiz stuff and rock and roll. and. That, that, that's what we do on Booth One. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, we'll, we'll, no take, we'll take that niche. <laughs> <laughs> I got that niche. No, I mean, what, I, I mean, I think what I love the most about the podcast is that every week it's a blank slate. We can talk about whatever we want. We talk extensively about basketball, which I know, mm-hmm. like, I don't know anything about yeah, basketball. Yeah, both of you are big sports fans, especially White Sox fans, yes? Yeah. I am, yeah. yeah. I'm a I, I, I'm a, I am fan. a White, White Sox fan. Baseball, I follow at a sports center pace, I would say, so I, I'm not totally in it, but... He's an I'm NBA guy. Definitely going to root for the White Sox for sure. And yeah. I have, I have a. We keep seeing little glimmers of hope from the Sox, and then they. <laughs> fuck I have a us soft over. spot in my heart no, for no, the no. Cubs a little bit, but yeah, ever, but my dad makes a really good point. Ever since they won, they won't shut the hell up. So I can't. Oh, the um, World Series! Yeah, honest to God, yeah. every fucking minute. Well, it was a hundred years. I mean, one hundred twelve. Yeah, I, I, they were I, I well know. under their second century of I'm, sucking. I'm yeah, yeah, they were. Uh, I'm, I'm very aware of that. Does. Yeah. You're, Does, you're a uh, lifelong Cubs guy, aren't you? Uh, you know, I grew up as a Sox fan. Okay. And yeah. have you gone over to the dark side. Oh, uh, my your, God. Your dark that side. That almost never happens. Almost never happens. Does sports play a big role in your art or your not, writing? Not so much like it used to. Yeah, you know? I, I felt mean, like years ago. Yeah, I made, earlier, it, it, yeah. you see baseball players, you see a lot of boxers, but um, yeah, I mean, you don't really the, see that that, that much That was anymore. stuff I examined, and I felt like I kind of have said my bit. And I think to last at anything, you, you have to evolve. I mean, now, I don't think I can watch a whole ball game on television, where 20 years ago I could. I mean, now I'm kind of, I check in at with ESPN and I catch the highlights and read a little bit in the paper. But unless I'm actually at the game, I don't I don't have three hours to burn. I had a, a heart attack three years ago and I just realized how finite time is. And I'm interested in nature and in literature and writing more. And uh, I won't so much give over the time anymore. I mean, I love baseball. And in my show, This Train, I examined my whole fascination with baseball and then I like to kind of uh, move on and examine other stuff that I'm interested in. You mentioned uh, a little while ago that you were in Paris. Yeah. Um, you are part of a, is it an Amazon show? Uh, yeah, it's, it's Amazon. on Amazon, yeah, Amazon called Prime. Patriot. 
And you yeah. play a very, very interesting character, a recurring role in the show. The name of your character Jack is Birdbath. Jack Birdbath. Yeah. Did you have anything to do with naming that character? I uh, know the showrunner, director, writer, and, and resident genius Stephen Conrad wrote that. And you recently were in Paris for yeah. an extended yeah. period of yeah. time. Max, Season did you go two. To? I got yeah. the pleasure of going the last month of So you got uh, a paid job, trip yeah. to Paris. And yeah, you got it was to, great. got to film there. What uh, a great time It of does year. not suck, man. It was great. <laughs> and also, I became a complete and total Francophile. Just love all things Parisian. And uh, it, it kind of formed the body of work I'm I'm currently working on right now. I mean, I just adored Paris, and I, I adored the French. You always heard that, you know, they were haughty and they're snooty. It's like, well, if you're an asshole, yeah. You run into a that's, lot of haughty and snooty when you're an asshole. That's, that's true pretty much everywhere. I could not have been shown more unfailing kindness and made more lasting friendships. I made so many friends in Paris, and I mean, people I will know for the rest of my life. Yeah, I'm so grateful to Amazon and to Patreon, to Steve for including me. I mean, this, yeah, was, this, is a, this, this is a was a definite odd turn in my life. At, yeah, for sure. At the age of, you know, I'm staring down the barrel of 60, and I'm, I have a weekly television job. <laughs> you know, right. I mean, if somebody How would have crazy. told me that 20 years ago, you could have knocked me over with a feather, and I, and, I love the job. And I this is an excellent part. show. It's about a oh, it's so good. an intelligence officer, a U.S. intelligence yep. officer, kind of quirky with a lot of weird habits. Oh, a little bit. Habits. <laughs> yeah. And he has to take a job undercover at this pipe and engineering piping firm, firm. Yeah. in Milwaukee. Piping firm in Milwaukee, yeah. In order to in order to get some uh, some plot. soft money to keep Iran from going nuclear. That's the premise of the first season. And that agent is played by a, a brilliant actor named Michael Dorman. Oh, he's fantastic. Yeah. Man, I, uh, absolutely. And, and he's in almost every scene. on and offset as well. Just and, uh, yeah, just one amazing of the human most being. phenomenal human beings you'll ever meet in your right. life. We we could not ask for more phenomenal castmates. You know, yeah. we could not ask for uh, better co-workers. It's just such a blessing. What did you do with your time in Paris, Max? Well, I was on I was on set. I was on uh, set all the time. Even if he was not on set, I was there. I, I we were eating dinner right before we went to France, and uh, we actually bumped into Steve Conrad, and he said, "Hey, you're going to France?" And I said, "Yeah," and he goes, "You know." Um, I kind of broke my leg. Uh, I'm going to be hobbled a little bit. Uh, I kind of broke my leg? Yeah, yeah. You know, he, it, didn't, it, he, he, didn't, um, he had no idea the extent of the injury. Yeah, he I thought he'd he, sprained his ankle, I'm, and they gave him this soft cast. Uh, he was walking around on a broken ankle for the last two months. Right, right. I mean, this just speaks to He's the guy's tough, man. I mean, obsession and yeah. um, passion. And, and this is 12, 14 hours a day on set. Right. Standing, Standing up. Yeah, yeah, and we're sh and he he tells me the first day, he says, you know, um, usually a good day shooting is three pages. And I said, really? Yeah. He goes, yeah. He goes, today we're going to shoot 12. Yeah. And we yeah. did. And it was just one of those things where you're just looking at the guy and you I realize... Know, it's insane. Oh, this is what giving your 110% is. That's Absolutely. what that extra gear is. Because once he hits cut, he's not like, oh, okay. Oh, no, no. Wait it's for the next deal, next thing. He yells know. cut. He turns right to one of his guys and says, okay, let me see the rushes from this. Let me see this. Uh, how's that location going over there? Uh, what, do we have to check it out now or later? It's one of those things where you're... 
he taught me your brain has to be constantly moving. Your motor has to be really working. Really high idle. And, yeah. and, you know, to make something great. You know, you really had to do your homework. You mm-hmm. came to set prepared. Sure. You were memorized. Sure. You were, you know, we didn't shoot in sequence, so you jumped around a lot and you had to absolutely be ready. Yeah. Do you enjoy that? It was a lot like theater. In theater, there's kind of no retakes. I mean, you show up, you're prepared. You know, when well, I did the, the re- shows... the retake is the next performance. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it's always you know, different. You know, when I did... The shows that I did at Steppenwolf were great preparation because I had to memorize 90 minutes of talking that I had to do five nights a week. So I was pretty ready. And memorization, Max ran lines with me continually. Because sometimes you, you show up and then the director's standing with a bunch of new pages in his head. It's like, oh, <laughs> oh, oh boy, new deal. But you I enjoyed mean, was, that excitement and that you know, immediate you And it was great mm-hmm. watching our fellow actors, you know, Kurtwood yeah. Smith, the great Kurtwood Smith. Uh, and Terry O'Quinn. And Deborah Winger. Deborah Winger. Uh, Deborah you know, Winger. I mean, wow. Yeah. They, you know, we got a master class yeah. in acting I don't camera. think any of those guys went past the third take. And if they did it, they, they didn't it have to. I don't think yeah. it was on their end. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're such a multi talented guy, Tony. You're an Gary, artist, anything you're an to author. avoid honest work. I'm serious uh, sure. about not pushing a wheelbarrow, man. <laughs> what, do you you, what do you like about acting? Because it's not you the know, greatest the of professions, time. and yeah, you don't yeah. do it. You don't do it as your sole profession, but you love no, to I've, do it. I've always found that the best respite from one creative pursuit, the best way to rest, is a, is another one. Which is why I've consistently always written poetry. I've consistently always written. When I was doing the column, my thought was, you know, if I can't say this in the column, I can probably draw this. And if I can't draw this, I can probably say this. So there was a good, nimble, and limber way to keep yourself engaged creatively all the time. And acting, wow, I mean, especially at this level. I mean, you know, the first 20 years of my film career, you can toss. You know, I mean, I'm thug one. I come in with a board. I beat the shit out of somebody. Very often, I played characters who didn't even have a name. But those were still enjoyable for us. I oh, mean, yeah. I mean, you're having <laughs> great was... fun with it. Him and his friends get together yeah. in the basement, roll up a fatty, and they watch my <laughs> the reel yeah, of that's, my first that's 20 what, years. That's what we did. We yeah. rolled up the fatty. We were like, okay, guys, let's watch my dad's old movies. Yeah. <laughs> you ought to put a reel together. Let's watch U.S. Marshals. Yeah. You ought to put a reel together, man. You know, I would, I would, I would love just, that. Yeah. I've still, yeah. never, I've still never made hits. a reel. <laughs> your, your agent hasn't made a reel for you? Uh, no, I don't bother him about stuff like that. But ever since I, I got hired by Spike Lee for Chirac, ever since the heart surgery, everything I've read for, I've gotten. Uh, I got used to being brought into the casting room. And there were five or six other overweight, bald guys waiting to, <laughs> waiting to read. It's like... Okay, here's fat ass, bald fat ass number one. Here's bald fat ass number two, you know. I think Birdbath surprised everybody. And, and honestly, I surprised myself. It was, I found out that I had more gears than I maybe thought I did. And it made me really love this thing we do. I'm at an age now where I can genuinely appreciate it. I'm not trying to uh, be a star or get the girl. I'm at an age where I'm allowed to be the age I am and the physicality I am and still do good work. And uh, that's really a blessing. And, uh, how freeing. 
Absolutely. To yeah, not have any and it, expectations and, and, on yourself. And you know what? It gets me out of the art world. Yeah. Which is the nicest thing in the world. I, I, I was in Paris for four and a half months. I didn't hear shit about Donald Trump, about the inherent misery that yeah. all Americans are going through right now with this despicable asshole for a president. Well, you were distracted, around. man. You yeah. were you were really... I think it's funny you said that because it's the art world. And I, I think you are an artist, obviously. I mean, yeah. you're, you're in these museums. You're... you're you're, oh yeah, you're I mean, great. I, but I, still love I doing feel like it, your yeah. personality is truly an actor personality. I always see you get along with actors way more than I'm other way, artists. I'm way closer to my fellow actors than I, I am I with think my fellow so. artists. I, I mean, I so. have a great many artists that are very dear friends. I mean, acting is is incredibly collaborative business, you know. So you have to have like a mishpucha, you know. You have to have like a cadre and a family of people that you trust. Every night at the Renaissance Republic, the cast of Patriot took over the lobby and we had great conversations and it, it, it's a really, truly multinational cast. So there's this real familial support group. Boy, we all became, you know, the best of friends. It's because you're on a you're on a good project. I mean, yeah. it's like it's like when sports teammates get along. It's like, yeah. do you really I mean, get along, nobody, or are you just yeah. winning a lot of games? You know what no, I'm saying? No, there's nobody on no, that call sheet that uh, I don't look forward to very seeing. Very genuine. Too. I mean, yeah. I genuinely, I skip to work every single day. I've never said that about a job I've had in my life. Right. That's you know, cool. Right. The, the great thing about Patriot, and you're especially going to be. This point's going to be driven home. Season two is it doesn't look like anything else on television. And That's it true. It feels like not. television. It feels like fine film. You know. Well, you can catch Tony in Patriot on Amazon, and yeah. I highly recommend it. Season one is already out there. Season it's a lot two, of fun too. Season two starts airing. I think we're we're going to drop in the fall. It's going to surpass the first season. Yeah, for sure. yeah. I, I'm biased. We know. We we we've read it. We got to act it. I, I've been reading uh, your latest, I think it's your latest uh, collection of stories called Dime Stories. The Secret Birds was after that, but that was specific to performance. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, Dime Stories was a collection of columns I wrote for New City. It's fantastic. Uh, every one of them is... Oh, really? You uh, like it? Every one of them is more thrilling than the next. Oh, no In fact, kidding. you've uh, written one back in 2014 called Donald Chump. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I saw him coming. And the, 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 the thing that I find so damnably sad about the last election is that a great many Americans voted with their middle finger and voted out of fear and bigotry. Uh, Donald Trump is a symptom. I mean, he's a... Honestly, the man's a fucking simpleton who couldn't write a grocery list. Or any dumber and they'd embalm him. <laughs> uh, but what he did was he awoken... The bile, the vile, absolute avarice and and bigotry and uh, fear in the body politic of the United States. And I think that the fear in the middle of America, unfortunately, has been our guiding hand. You know, a drowning man will grab a snake. And that's what they did with Donald Trump. You know, he's like, oh, I'm going to bring back jobs. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Meanwhile, he had no plan. But people looked at him and they thought, 
Well, he's a billionaire, which is also bullshit. He's not. And he's ignorant, and he's bigoted, and he's stupid, and uh, he's just like me. So I think they're projected onto Trump all of their fear, all of their sad feeling of inequity. And I, and I have genuine empathy uh, for people at the, with the economic gun pointed at their chest. I mean, believe me, I had no insurance, and I had uh, a heart attack. And only because of the ACA was I able to recover from this financially. Yeah, I, th- I think Trump is a, a symptom. It's everything else that he's woken up that we have to really look out for. Something on a lighter note. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, <laughs> I didn't mean to drive Not a doom truck through the Not center of the show, you know. Uh, have you heard of New York City's League of Kitchens? I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. It's cooking class unlike you've never experienced before. League of Kitchens offers workshops led by female immigrants in their homes. They have a stable of 10 cooks, each from a different nation. Afghanistan, Argentina, Bangladesh, Greece, India, Japan, Lebanon, Mexico, and oddly, Uzbekistan. You know, the safest food I can eat is from those regions. Well, The Middle Eastern diet. I mean, it's... These uh, 10 female cooks, they teach the dishes they grew up watching their mothers make. League of Kitchens, they offer two and a half and five and a half hour classes. They call them workshops Uh for six people where you go to these women's homes in and around New York City and have a whole immersive experience in whatever culture you choose. You cook together, eat together, learn together. I I think it would be perfect here. Yeah, Yeah. and talk about two guys who got to learn how to cook. (laughs) And they share culture and stories, and you go home with a booklet of their family recipes and an in-depth shopping guide so that you can then go make these at home. Anthony Bourdain would have been proud of this program. Oh, you bet. Definitely, yeah. yeah. The Endangered Language Alliance estimates that there are, get this, around 800 languages spoken in homes in New York City. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I looked up Chicago, and they estimate about 150. Easily. I think that's low. League of Kitchens is about creating a deeper, more equal opportunity for exchange and learning. The Condé Nast Traveler has said, quite possibly the coolest foodie thing to do in New York, whether you're a visitor or a local. Man, that's, I think that's an astonishing. And they idea. only charge... Chicago, they should do this. Yeah, and they yeah. only charge $120 for the two-and-a-half-hour session. You know what I'd oh, learn, love to learn how that's to cook? Deal. I'd love to learn how to cook some Japanese food, some Mexican food. Italian and French. You got to work a VCR before you can think about cooking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you're interested at all, next time you're in New York, and we'll see if they try to launch this in Chicago. I sure hope they do. Go to leagueofkitchens.com for more information. Leagueofkitchens.com for more information. Tony, I'd like to give the listeners a little taste of your authorship and I wonder if you'd be kind enough to read a story that I've picked out of Dime Stories. Sure, which one? Well, I could have chosen any of about a dozen. I love so many of them. But oddly, the very first story in the book struck Oh, the me. one that got me in more trouble than anything. Maybe so. It's called... I had bird watchers wanting to shank me. It's called to... For the Birds. Yeah. Would you mind reading that? It's not, not long. Not at all. Not at all. Hope is the Thing with Feathers. Emily Dickinson. On occasion, I entertain the idea of joining birdwatching organizations or the Audubon Society because I am a lover of birds. 
it makes sense to be around like-minded people whom one can learn more about birds from. It does, until you meet them. <laughs> Bird-watching groups are full of the birdier-than-thou crowd who lug their dog-eared Sibley and Peterson guides around in an L.L. Bean field bag and appraise you from head to toe when you make their acquaintance. <laughs> I've attempted to blend in with the bird-wise on a few occasions over the last three decades. One time I found myself not far from Cape May, New Jersey on the day of a big gathering to count birds as they migrated this being one of the optimum migration paths in the country. I signed up and paid my fee and bought a fancy schmancy bird guy in the shoulder bag and took the best on there from Philadelphia. Let me tell you, Bunky, I was ready. I bought a new moleskin, some sketching stuff, washes and watercolors and ink. I brought out my old army binoculars that I'd won in a card game and an outdoorsman vest and a pair of hiking shoes. I looked like Tony J. Bird Guy. <laughs> I got to Cape May Observation Point and started to mingle among my people, the bird-wise. And let me tell you, a more contemptible collection of insufferable snotty pukes you will never meet. When I got there, it was clear that a lot of these people knew each other. Lots of Sierra Club t-shirts and crushed boonie hats. Some adorned with one or two feathers, a lot of expensive outerwear, and many people sporting zinc oxide on their nose. About 25 feet from the crowd, I quickly surmised that there was really nobody for me to talk to, and I fired up a cigarette. No sooner than I had done that, a pinch-faced old bitch in a jumpsuit and a John Deere hat sprinted over to me. She was apoplectic stamping her feet and snorting, you cannot do that here. <laughs> I honestly didn't know what the fuck she was talking about. I said, do what? She said, smoke. You can't smoke here, fella. This is a sanctuary for birds, sir. <laughs> I calmly told her that I was outside. And technically, that meant that I was in the world's largest smoking section. I also told her that the birds didn't give a fuck if I smoked or not. She continued stamping her feet and turned in a circle, yelling, you will put that out this instant. I started laughing because it was ridiculous. This 80-year-old lady was acting like a fucking two-year-old. And I decided that I'd be goddamned if I'd allow myself to be bullied by this fossil. At this point, a slightly younger old guy came over and said, do what she says at once, extinguish that. Now I got pissed. I told him I was too nice a guy to slap the shit out of a spoiled and entitled old lady, but I promised him I'd have no problem stomping his wrinkled ass. I told him that he should find another place in Cape May to be an asshole, and that he should bring this whirling hearse bait with him. <laughs> I forgot how fucking mean this was. <laughs> soon I had all of the it get, room. It gets better. Soon I had all of the room in Cape May that I wanted. Word had circulated among the khaki-clad geeks that I was not good birder people. Boo-hoo. <laughs> when I was a kid, I saw a gold fringe on the ground. From a ways off, it looked like a clump of dandelions. And when I got up close, 
It exploded to life in a bright whir of yellow feathers and sound like, like a tiny sun. It flew straight up into my face and I felt a slight whoosh of warm air and then it was gone. It was magical in a way that I didn't understand and how at one moment inanimate and next just burst to life. When I got home, I tried to convince my mother that I'd seen a dandelion turn into a bird and fly. My father had had a heart attack when I was five, and my grandmother had come to live with us to help my mother and with me and my seven siblings. Every morning, she would toast a piece of bread and spread some jelly on it. Then she'd break it into small pieces and throw it on the back for the birds. I was shocked. In a family of eight kids, it was a sin to waste food. We never wasted food. I asked my grandmother, Mamie, why are you giving our bread to the birds? Why are you wasting food? At first she ignored me and just looked out the window, listening with this wistful half smile on her face. After the third time, she held her finger up to her lips and said, be quiet, listen, give your ears a chance. And for the first time I heard it. Blackbirds, sparrows, house finches, morning doves. My grandmother looked down at me and said, for a piece of bread, you can hear God sing. Thank you, Tony. That's wonderful. What a great story. Yeah, that's, that one kind of destroys me every time I read it, you know. And it's the first one in the book. and It's the first column I ever wrote for New City, and we got hate mail out the ass for that from the birdie people. <laughs> and then eventually I, I got to know a bunch of them. We all became really, really good friends, and they admitted to me that the East Coast Cape May birders, they were kind of a precious bunch. And in the meantime, I got to know three guys, Greg Neese, Jeff Screntney, and Joel Greenberg, who anytime I needed to know anything about birds, I could call one or all three of these guys. And they mm -hmm. uh, became very close, dear, dear friends. Birds know. play a great part in Huge. your artwork. Yeah. Always have. Absolutely. I was Since thinking I was of you the kid. I was thinking of you the other day. I was out on the golf course and I got buzzed by a Red wing blackbird. Oh yeah, I'd you're too close to the nest. Clearly gotten too close to the nest. Yeah, there was a little exactly. pond with some reeds. They'll fuck you up, man. <laughs> <laughs> he, they're not big, but boy, no. they are tenacious. Hey, where do a blue jay gets a hold of you? Oh, I hear they're mean. You bet they're mean, man. They're 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 from the crow family. Crows, jays. Oh, you know. yeah. Wow. We have in the studio with us, listening in today, uh, my good friend uh, Robbie Young. And he's nodding in agreement that Blue Jays really will go oh, yeah. after you. Yeah. yeah, they'll kick your ass. They, they do not play. You know, we damn near lost them all. All uh, the Blue Jays? Yeah, 10 years ago, 12 years ago with the West Nile. Oh. Wreaked havoc on Jays, mm. Blackbirds, Assiterids, uh, mm. Jays, Blackbirds, Crows. But, and then they kind of came back because of all of the protections afforded them by the EPA, which are now being stripped away by douchebag. Uh, tangerine <laughs> yeah, Mussolini. <laughs> tangerine Mussolini. Max, you mentioned right at the top of the show that you work at Adventureland. Yes. Uh, yes. With your dad. Well, he's the manager of the gallery, so he's being well, humble. Right. You are being humble. You're the manager of the yeah. gallery. Yeah. Tell us a little um, bit more about Adventureland, where it is, yeah, what people can expect when they go there. So, yeah, Adventureland is located. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a, I'm writing well, that's that all down. You got, that's all you got to know, me really. Address. So, it's, it's located in this interesting spot it's 
technically in Humboldt Park, but it's sort of in between Humboldt Park, Wicker Park, and, Wicker. and, and Ukrainian and Village Bucktown, there. Yeah. So it's it's in this really hybrid spot on 1513 Northwestern. and Plenty it, of parking, Yeah, folks. plenty of parking. Pet-friendly, uh, pet free friendly, beer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And uh, what, how I started, uh, this gallery was founded in 2012. So yeah. when they started having openings, I bartended the shows. And I didn't really think much of that. It was just sort of a really great way to get some side Easy money cash. for a, a college kid. Yeah. And then I graduated and I was still bartending the shows. The plan was always to do that until I wanted to do something else or something better came up. And at the time, I was uh, at Community Television Network, and I was volunteering for five weeks, just teaching kids how to make movies. And, and it was one of the best times of my life, but it did not pay, and, it, and <sighs> I was out of college. So somehow, uh, after that five-week run, the manager of Adventureland uh, had stepped out, and the position was open for me. So yeah. I took advantage of that, and... The idea was just to be there for maybe a few months, maybe until they can get somebody. But I truly fell in love with the job and helping artists and, and creating shows. I, I think it's one of the best times. And you can see in the opening, there's nothing more rewarding than yeah. happy get, faces and, and, yeah. and people making sales. And even if you don't He's, make a sale and you get a big crowd, that's awesome. But if we can do everything for you, that's the most rewarding. He's thing also me. helped me with all of my licensing. He understands licensing. I did a line of clothing for charity last year, and uh, it's something we're we're going to revisit. Right. And yeah. And, and you have a website doing posters yeah. now. This which, is all him. And he has a, he has a WordPress out there with with great stories, and we thought about taking that down, but I don't want that to go down. I think that should remain. No, up I kind of like I kind of like that it's still out there, but uh, but eventually. There's a whole shit ton of writing that never got published that probably should at some point. Right. You know? But the website is TonyFitzpatrick.co, and then we got to develop posters, ideas yeah. for yeah, uh, making posters. And, and We've done a lot of charity. We did a lot of yeah. stuff for Planned Parenthood, for the ACLU, for... Uh, Alive. Alive, uh, our favorite animal dog rescue, shelter, yeah. animal rescue well, shelter. What's the, what's the address? The physical address of uh, Adventureland. Oh, Where sorry, uh, fifteen thirteen Northwestern, Northwestern uh, North and Western. Yeah. We oh, have two galleries and, um, there now. We have Adventureland. We have the Dime and the Dime Showroom yeah. as well, which is a little more low key. But if you if you go to Adventureland, odds are you're you're going to see the Dime as yeah, well. Yeah, because so. it's about thirty steps away. Yeah, cool. it's, yeah. Uh, down around the corner. It's like I had this room where I was just I emptied it out, painted it, made it really pretty, and. It was going to be a showroom at first, and I thought, well, that's, a, that's kind of a little weird and selfish. And and it was, it actually was a showroom yeah. uh, for the first few well, months. Yeah. And, and what I used to do was work out my exhibitions there. I would hang yeah. all my work and figure out what the next show was going to look like. Somebody gives me a show for, say, like 15 to 17 pieces. I make 30, and I cut from there. And then we ship it, but we look at it a lot. Max is one of the best 
assessors of of what belongs and what doesn't. You cool. Know? Where, where did you go to school, Matt? I'd probably just start with my high school, but I, I think the my favorite school I ever went to was my elementary school called LaSalle <laughs> Language Academy, and that led me to Whitney Young, which was a great high school, and it, and it has a good reputation. Chance Michelle food. Obama went there. so yeah. CPS really bothers me of how they set up the high you school system. It's like the pressure of getting into a college, but you're 13 years old. It, yeah. it's, uh, it's really dumb to me, but I had a great time there, and uh, if, if you can go there, go there. I think everyone deserves that quality of education. I don't think it should be determined at 13 years old. But yeah. then I went to Columbia College, and before that I was at a community college in California because I thought I wanted to do the California thing. Yeah, yeah and then the you went to the beach the, for six months. <laughs> the culture shock set in there, and uh, yeah, I wanted to I wanted to make more meaningful work, and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to do that in a in a setting that I was unfamiliar with. So I wanted to go back to Chicago and make city movies. Every director that. I was ever influenced by made movies in their cities. Scorsese, Spike Lee. Coppola. Co- Coppola. And Abel I, Ferrara. Right, right, right. I, I want to say Woody Allen, but then I'm like, oh, never mind. And, um, that's a, that's <laughs> yeah. a whole other doorway that right. maybe we don't want to open. No, no, no. I use his name because he was he was a guy who who got the best out of his city. For, I still but, defend um, crimes and misdemeanors. Sure, I still sure. love that it's, film. It's, uh-huh. it's a great movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just for, for yeah. Martin Landau... <laughs> Jerry Orbach, Angelica Houston, and I, the story. I mean, yeah, it's a it's yeah. a great philosophical and Alan dilemma. And, and uh, I think it also points at Alan was pointing at you know this kind of id that he carries. Is it better to get away with something unspeakable and have to live with it than uh, to get busted for it? Again, in the rearview mirror, that that question seems telling. I have to do a, a shameless plug for ourselves here. Oh, God, here. please do. If you'd like to support Booth One in bringing you the best in lively conversation about the arts and fascinating guests like Tony and Max Fitzpatrick, <laughs> that's hard to it's, say. It's, yeah. I, I did not figure that out till college. Someone goes, <laughs> Max Fitzpatrick. She goes, your name is weird. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. You yeah. can go to our website at www.booth-one.com and click on the donate button. It's quick, it's easy, and it's fully tax deductible under our 501c3 status as a nonprofit entity. Any contribution, Tony, would be greatly appreciated. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm, Send I'm us totally, some cake. Totally kidding. Totally kidding. Send us yeah. some scratch. Also, I need to give a shout out once again to my favorite comedy improv troupe in Chicago, Chicago's premier all psychotherapist comedy improv troupe. <laughs> They're called the Therapy Players. Really? Really. Nice. That's really a thing. They. It's really a thing. They. They just did a show in Skokie, which unfortunately I had to miss because we had some theater tickets that night. But they are going to do a show at the Macaw Theater on West Jarvis. Do you know that place? I don't. Yeah, it's uh, my friend uh, Antoine McKay. That's his uh, theater. Really? Space. That's his theater? Yeah, that's Twan's space. Antoine yeah. McKay is on Patreon. He's on he Patreon. He's the me. HR. Oh, he's, right. he's, a, sure. he's the uh, uh, human resources yeah. guy. Yeah. Well, this will be on Saturday, July 14th, if you have that. Day free or that evening yeah, free, I, 1439 I West Jarvis at okay. 8 p.m. The Therapy Players, Chicago's premier all psychotherapist comedy improv troupe. Yeah, I, I, boy. <laughs> you mentioned earlier, Tony, that you'd just designed a poster 
Yeah, I did a poster of the Women's Refugee Commission. Do you do much poster art these days? You know, I do it now as an outgrowth of activism. You can't hang around Steve Earle for any length of time and not become an activist. (laughs) Even in the audience, I've become an activist. Absolutely. uh, (laughs) Just listening um, to his music. You know, Steve was on the Lampedusa tour, which raised uh, funds for for Syrian refugees that wound up on that island of Lampedusa, which is just off Italy and Greece, that uh, a great many Syrian refugees landed and and was the subject of that horrifying, heartbreaking photograph of that child drowned. I really felt like this is something I can do. If there was a way to use my art to to raise money and to shine a light on this and to maybe provide some measure of relief, this is not only a thing worth doing, but I I think we're we're honor-bound, particularly as Americans. Uh, Again, we have no small part in those tragedies, particularly those refugees, those people Mm -hmm. made nationless and and placeless. And, And hats off to both Greece and Italy and and. France, who've done a lot of the heavy lifting, in Germany, who've uh, taken in a great many refugees. You know, they're small countries, and those things can be onerous and, and, and burdensome and very, very difficult, not only for, for the governments, but the people who live there. You know, my daughter is on an island called Lesvos, which is uh, just off of Greece, and, you know, every night there's a landing with 35, 40 people on a raft designed for like maybe seven or eight people. And they land in the middle of the night often without shoes, without food. I think that the refugee crisis, uh, we're going to have it for a long time and in many, many places in the world. We have it here right now. So, I, yeah, I intend on being part of that conversation. And well, God, God I've, bless I think Gabby. the most potent thing I can do with my particular skill set is make art that people might like to buy. For the, There's going to be a musical tour. We don't know exactly who the personnel is completely yet, but I can tell you, you know, Steve Earle and Emmylou Harris are part of it, and probably Robert Plant, and uh, this will probably go off sometime in October. Well, God bless you, and God bless Thank Gabby you. for what she does. Yeah. Max and Tony, we usually finish our podcasts with a segment we call The Kiss of Death. Now, this is a segment where we celebrate the life of someone that we've recently lost. They could be famous, not famous, in the arts, in any other sort of endeavor. But if you'll bear with me, I'd like to uh, talk a little bit about someone that has passed away. And I think you'll find this interesting, Tony and Max. Bill Gold, who designed more than 2,000 movie posters from Casablanca and My Fair Lady to Dirty Harry, The Exorcist, and Goodfellas, making him one of the film world's leading image makers. Him and Saul Bass. Him and Saul Bass. Two of the best, yeah. The first poster he designed after joining the Warner Brothers art department was for Yankee Doodle Dandy. George M. Cohan biography. Indeed. Uh, His second job was Casablanca. Yeah. The poster is a humble but crucial, I'm speaking of the movie poster now, a humble but crucial piece of advertising that helps define a moviegoer's mental image of a film. Did he do the poster for Chinatown? 
He did not, but he did something very, because very similar. Because that guy should have sent him a check. <laughs> you know, because that was, that was lifted right out of Casablanca. Totally. I, I know that poster. I mean, I know it well. Gold's job, obviously, was to entice people into theaters by capturing a film's message in a single image and a few words. You yeah. get how that goes, Tony. Uh, without giving away too much of the plot. Well, when he was asked in 1942 to design the poster for Casablanca, the movie was still in production, so without seeing even a single scene, Gold painted a montage of its stars. You remember mm -hmm. this poster. Oh, I know, I I know it by heart. I can see it in my yeah. mind's eye. With Bogart in the front, wearing a trench coat and a fedora, and he wrote the word Casablanca yeah. in a flowing sign painter's sort of script along yeah, the bottom. Yeah, it was done in a gorgeous heavy watercolor wash. The executives at Warner Brothers weren't quite satisfied with the original, though. They thought it was too static. They wanted more action, Gold said. I didn't have time to change it much, so I just stuck Bogey's hand in the front and I put a gun in it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they liked that much better, even yeah. though, of course, we know Bogart handles a gun in that movie for all of, what, six minutes? Precisely. Yeah. He's, yeah. Not, yeah. he's not really a gun I mean, he more guy. navigates that whole movie by his wits. Yeah. Right, yeah. Golda went on to create posters for such films as A Streetcar Named Desire, The Searchers, Cool Hand Luke. Oh, yeah. That was a good poster. Funny Girl, Bullet, one of my favorite yeah. movies. That Steve McQueen uh, film from Ooh. 1968. A Clockwork Orange, Deliverance, The Sting, Blazing Saddles, yep. On Golden Pond, and Mystic River. Quite, oh, quite wow, the career. Wow. Yeah. He approached every single movie as a chance to advance the storytelling, Michael Beirut, a graphic design critic, said. For The Sting, for instance, Gold borrowed the style of illustrator J.C. Liondecker. Yeah. Remember J.C.? Yeah, because uh, he studied under N.C. Wyeth, who was Andrew Wyeth's father and a famous illustrator for... Movies, magazines, outdoor scenes. And, he also uh, created the Arrow Collar Man oh, advertisements yeah. in the early 20th century and many covers for the Saturday Evening Post. Gold created a much darker mood for The Exorcist. Yeah. Told by the studio that he could not use any religious imagery or a picture of Linda Blair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't just, know why. Just Max von Sydow under that streetlight. A still photo up. of Max yeah. von Sydow silhouetted beneath yeah. a, a lamppost. Uh, posters are meant to evoke an emotional response from audiences and often show images that are not actually in the film. Yeah. For Sam Peckinpah's 1969 western, The Wild Bunch, yeah. Gold snapped a photograph <laughs> of the actors walking across a parking lot trailed by the long shadows. He altered the image of the color there and enhanced the shadows and created now, a poster now if you that's look been at it, endlessly Borgnine copied. He's got the shotgun cradled in his arms like a baby. Yeah. It's the craziest thing he ever saw. It's the Wild Bunch. It's a crazy movie. Yeah. Kill him. Kill them all. <laughs> William Holden, Robert Ryan, man. It was Robert Ryan's the perfect coda for a brilliant career. You sign your work, don't you? Always? Yeah. yeah. Well, Gold's name seldom appeared on his work. Even as movie posters became collector's items, he was largely unknown outside his profession. He finally emerged from the shadows in 2010 with the publication of a 16-pound, $650 limited edition book called Bill Gold Poster Works. Oh, with did an Tashin do it? An introduction by Clint Eastwood, 16 pounds. Yeah, I mean, he that's did a lot of work. That's about what Dime Stories weighs. <laughs> I, you know, when Dime Stories was published, book. I was amazed that there were that many 
columns. 87, I, hadn't I think. I kind of counted them up. I'll finish up here with William Gold. He was born in 1921. What a fine choice for a eulogy, bro. Indeed. You really... He began drawing and going to the movies at an early age and studied illustration at the Pratt Institute. Oh, yeah. During World War II, he made training films while serving in the Army Air Forces. He loved movies, his wife said. He, it wasn't like advertising a can of peas. Every no. movie is different. You can't do the same thing twice. Gold always kept a camera with him at all times, photographing images that sometimes ended up in the movie posters. Mm -hmm. And one of his final projects for Clint Eastwood's Mystic River included the upside-down image of three men reflected in a yep. pool of water. Yep. Remember that? Yeah. It's a photograph that was taken near Gold's home. Wow. <laughs> uh, he retired in 2004. Bill Gold, designer of famous movie posters, was 97. Wow. Good life. Yeah. yeah Rest amen. in peace. That's, that's God amazing. Godspeed, Mr. Gold. You know? I'd like yeah. to see you do a movie poster or two. Anybody you ever know, approach you about that? Independent it, filmmakers? On occasion. The hardest thing about me with commissions is I really have to like what the job is. Because I, I have choices. I mean, I don't sure. have to do any kind of... You don't work, work at the Warner Brothers uh, Art anybody. Department. I do you mean, work yeah. for yourself? So Nobody with anything that I found compelling enough to, to do. It'd be interesting to see what you came up with, though, on something that you, you know, did. I, love I think I think the closest movies, thing yeah. is he did a he did a uh, soundtrack for art wild. for yeah. something wild, directed by Jonathan Demme, and I think that's the closest you've done to a a movie coat. Yeah, I mean, it was of course it was for Jonathan, who we loved, and uh, yeah, was close friend of yours, like, Jonathan like an Demme. Uncle to our my kids, yeah, yeah, yeah was We lost Jonathan not too long ago, last year. No, yeah. we lost yeah. him the same day we lost Martha Levy, who was a dear, dear friend, and mm. uh, I probably whatever career I have uh, as an actor, I owe to three women. I owe to Martha Levy, Annie Filmer, and Betsy Ingram. The best things I ever did, they directed. What's next on the horizon for you? I'm Are you working a on a show. project? You're writing I'm, a show. Yeah, I'm writing a show right now. And Is it a Broadway musical? No. <laughs> no but, it's, but it's very musical. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to have a lot of jazz and a lot of Edith Piaf songs and maybe some Serge Gainsborough. And I'll just say it's a love letter to Paris. Fantastic. By a bunch of guys who can't speak any French. You know? <laughs> um, I think the opening line is, just pretend I'm speaking French. Ceci bon. Very, yeah. Um, Désolé, je parle un peu français. I'm sorry I don't speak your beautiful language. <laughs> yes. Always a good though. thing I mean, to know. Yeah. But, but I mean, we both came back from uh, Paris with a head full of ideas. I mean, Max and his friends... The first time he went to Paris, they have that tradition of going to Lachaise and rolling up a couple fatties and standing around Jim Morrison's grave. That's with this rolling the fatties. Yeah, it's is, always the fatties. I, I you can't I, envision I me in I a different way. I think I found the title of our show, Mrs. Yeah. Producer. Yeah, rolling the fatties. Rolling the fatties with Tony and Max. Rolling right. the fatties right. in Lachaise <laughs> Cemetery. You know? Well, oh. thank you to our guests. 
Max and Tony Fitzpatrick. See how I switched the names there? So yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 I like that. I like that. I uh, say we lead with got the a ring guy. to it. <laughs> I say we lead with the guy with hair from now on. Fun, you know? Fantastic. Yeah. And he's got a nice head of hair as well. We, for now. We so <laughs> appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Oh, happy to be here, man. Thanks for having us. Um, visit again our website at uh, www.booth-one.com for prior episodes and more information about our program. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski saying so long and keep listening.